how ethical funds might provide protection in a downturn, making money from student accommodation, and why the managers of British Empire Trust are launching a new Japanese trust. Welcome to Investors Chronicle's Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Emma Ajman, Personal Finance Writer at the Investors Chronicle, and joining me today is Taha Lokhandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at the Investors Chronicle, and Nick Barker, a director of GCP Student Living. The managers of British Empire Trust have announced they will be launching a dedicated Japanese equity investment trust in September. Taha, you've been looking at this. Who's going to be running the trust and what will it be investing in? It's going to be the, the same managers as British Empire, which is led by Joe Bournevoid. Um British Empire takes a very value approach. So what it's looking for across global equities is companies that are undervalued or need some slight changes to make sure that they increase shareholder value. They're generally looking at balance sheets to see where there's a lot of cash and where slight changes can be made to make sure that shareholder value increases. So they're looking at Japan. They've, they've been looking at the space for a while in British Empire. And then they've realized that there's about five to 600 companies that have about 30% of their market cap uh, held in cash. So they're thinking, well, we can go into this space with dedicated trust and take advantage of some of the corporate governance changes taking place in Japan as well. Okay. As you mentioned, British Empire Trust have been looking at this for a while and they seem to be quite interested in Japan. The actual trust, British Empire Trust, has quite a light, large exposure to Japan. So how different is this new trust going to be to British Empire? So yeah, British Empire went into Japan, uh, had 5% about 18 months ago. It's now well over 20. Their conviction has only grown since then. So as I said, a lot of companies that have this cash level, shareholder policies are improving and companies seem to be responding to kind of shareholder demands as well. So all these things are changing. So currently British Empire has um, around 20 companies in its trust in Japan. Um, and they're going to have that all 20 will be involved in the new Japanese equity trust. And there's probably going to be an additional 10. Obviously things will change over time, but around 30. The composition will be slightly different. And this is the this is one of the main reasons why the trust is being launched as the weightings will be very different because what British Empire is struggling with at the moment is they can't allocate quite a lot to these smaller cap companies where they're finding opportunities. But the new trust is only going to be around, well, the IPO is looking for between 100 and 200 million. British Empire is well in excess of 700 million at the moment. So the new trust will be able to invest more in these smaller companies without having to worry about liquidity as much. Okay. And um, you also mentioned corporate governance and the fact that Japan seems to be moving closer to better corporate governance. Is that something that this trust is going to be focusing on? Are they going to be quite activist in their approach? Um, yeah, it's activist, but not in the sense that we, we talk about with hedge funds or if uh, our readers and listeners remember Alliance Trust a couple of years ago. So it's, it's activist, but in a pragmatic way. So what asset value investors are trying to do here is take advantage of the corporate code, which came into Japan in the last five years, where it's it forces companies to be more diligent about their their shareholder value and change the way they, they act towards shareholders and be more amenable to, to their demands. So what asset value investors want to do is go in, very pragmatically talk to these companies and say, do you know what? We think 30% is a bit too much to have on your balance sheet in terms of cash. Why don't you start increasing dividends or why don't you start kind of, you know, buying back some of our shares so we can make high returns on our share price and, and things like that. And, you know, they've, they've been doing this for the past few years as well. They have, they have form on this, a recent case with one of the biggest holdings in British Empire was Tokyo Broadcasting System. So it's a huge holding is about 6.7% in the trust. And they, they wanted the company to sell its holding in another, broadcasting company um it didn't go through in the end but they they ran a very positive kind of media campaign trying to convince other shareholders to get involved in this their clout is growing in japan and 
they think using this new trust it can only grow better but it seems as if they're seen in quite a positive light they're not aggressive they are they are pragmatic they will obviously start discussions with the companies first but just generally seeing opportunities to work with management and make things better for shareholders okay thanks taha it'll be interesting to see how the market reacts to the ipo now, funds that invest with an environmental, social and governance approach have been growing in popularity with investors. Many have performed well in the strong global equity bull market that we've had. And some analysts are now claiming that these funds could be a good defence if markets start to turn. Um, so, Taha, you've been investigating this claim. Why do you think ESG funds could perform better in a downturn? The theory is is that ESG funds and what these tend to do is they they focus on companies that have um, better environmental records, that's the E, a better social kind of conscious and social records, that's the S, and better governance, which is the G. The theory is that these companies that focus on having a better environmental policy, social policies and better general governance as a company are higher quality. And therefore, if you're a higher quality company and market goes into a cyclical downturn, higher quality companies would sell off less than kind of non as well, lower quality companies. Um, you add to this that ESG investing as a concept started in the institutional investment space. So we're talking very large global pension funds that have billions of pounds to invest. These kind of funds, they, they invest for the long term. They are, you know, they buy companies, they hold them for five to 10 years. So what that means is that these these kind of shareholders would be less likely to reduce their stock in an economic downturn because they'll ride it out. So therefore you would see less selling of these companies than other companies. And do we have any sort of evidence that suggests that, that it's correct that ESG or higher quality companies will perform better in a downturn? Uh, there, there is some. If you look at the MSCI World Index and look at the MSCI World ESG Universal Index, the latter index does show more defensive qualities. It has a, a lower maximum loss. And what that means is it looks at the kind of worst possible moment an investor could enter that index and leave that index and see how much they would have lost over a specific period. Uh, the problem with that is that this, the latter, the ESG index only launched a year ago. So the data is limited, but it's, it is already showing in what we've had, what has been a volatile year um, in terms of global equity markets, it's showing some defensive qualities. Okay. Um, but I know that a lot of ESG sort of funds will ban certain areas like weapons, mining, tobacco, and these are traditionally quite defensive areas. So um, isn't it the case that actually those sectors might help you if you're trying to sort of protect your portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, a basic ESG screen um, that we kind of saw developing around 10, 15 years ago was just taking out things that investors disagreed with. And that tends to be things that people found either detrimental to society or kind of against their ethics obvious things being, as you mentioned, tobacco and armaments. But the problem with these stocks is that, as you said, they are non-cyclical. So what that means is that company performance doesn't change in an economic downturn because, you know, people smoke whether there's a recession or not. And defense expenditure happens regardless of economic downturns as well. Um, so what you, you might get is if you have a simple screening policy that takes out these companies, you might actually end up with more market beta. And that means that your, your fund performance would match the volatility of the market more than it would if you hadn't taken out these stocks. So does that mean then you're actually better off going for a more flexible fund, an ESG fund that maybe doesn't ban um, certain areas? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's two types of ESG funds that you can have. You can have the screening one, which I just talked about, which kind of just removes companies that you, you don't want, you disagree with. Or you can take a slightly more proactive approach, and that's uh, look at some ESG funds that actively tilt towards companies that demonstrate the better qualities. So you, rather than screening out bad governance, you're looking for extremely good governance. And rather than looking for you know a bad environmental record by taking out oil companies, you're looking for companies that are investing in new kind of energy technology and kind of tilting your portfolio into a way 
that it's more positive rather than just not negative. Um, and what that should do is lead you to the kind of really high quality companies that we talked about earlier. So are there any other reasons why ESG funds could be less defensive then? One thing to be conscious of with these ESG funds is that the companies that, especially the proactive ones, the companies that tend to demonstrate these really proactive ESG qualities tend to be newer companies or tend to be smaller companies as the the larger companies, it's obviously harder to change the way your governance structure is and what your environmental policies are. So historically, these these funds have been tilted towards mid and smaller caps and some of the larger companies, especially you know the tobacco ones, etc., still get screened out either way. So you have to be conscious of the fact that if you're in mid and smaller caps, your fund is going to be more volatile anyway and mid caps sell off more in an economic downturn than large caps do. But if you're prepared to take on these risks, which ESG funds do you think could be a good call in a defensive capacity? I looked at a few of these, but one I found that I quite liked was the uh, the Janus Henderson Global Sustainable Equity Fund. Uh, this has been run by Hamish Chamberlain, who's head of social responsible investing at Janus Henderson since 2013. It's um, I liked it because it, it does two things. One, it's beaten the index and peers over one, three and five years, but it's also shown better defensive metrics as well. So its maximum loss has been lower than the sector and the index and its downside risk has been low as well. And downside risk is the probability of the, the portfolio not meeting its expected target. So it's these are these are kind of key defensive metrics that have come up quite well. Great. Thank you very much, Taha. When it launched in 2013, GCP Student Living was the first real estate investment trust in the UK to invest in student accommodation. And since then, it has performed well. Nick, what's been driving the performance of the trust? The REIT was launched, as you say, back in 2013, and it was specifically launched looking at to target a type of asset that we thought could deliver good returns to our shareholders, primarily through income. And Student accommodation and large student accommodations in London, we thought, would be the the product that would deliver that return. Um, The reason why we think we've delivered such strong returns, and I I think it's probably worth just saying what our returns are today, which were 12% annualised. So if you'd invested a pound um, back in 2013, you'd have experienced 12% each year up until July 2018. And I guess one of the primary reasons for that performance has been rental growth. So London as a market is structurally undersupplied in terms of this type of accommodation and because of that rents have grown each year um, by about four percent each year that rental growth has been greater than um, the rents for the same type of accommodation across the united kingdom Um, so it's been stronger than than its other competing cities Um, but it's also been stronger than inflation so that rental growth has been one of the primary drivers of that total return the other reason is this type of asset has become established as a mainstream investment for very large investors looking at getting returns out of UK property markets. And because of that, yields have compressed. Um, The other thing that's happened is, as with all other real assets and the the wider investment market, there's been quite a lot of capital chasing investments, and that has driven some capital growth by yields compressing. And we've benefited from that over, over that period. Okay. And is this specific to student accommodation? I mean, are there other areas of market that are seeing this level of rental yield growth, for example? So the capital growth is not necessarily something that just student accommodation have experienced. So um, student accommodation had its record year in terms of the number of transactions taking place by value in 2015. There was about £6 billion 
pounds worth of student accommodation assets traded that year. And that's actually probably the period when yields compressed the most. Um, but that year, commercial property also experienced its record year in terms of the number of transactions. It was over 70 billion traded that year. And therefore, it's it's something that real assets, I'd say, experienced as a whole. Um, yields in student accommodation. One of the things that's one of the things I find quite interesting is that although they compressed, they compressed to a lesser extent than commercial property, and that happened um, in the sort of years before the downturn and after the downturn. So the volatility in returns that student accommodation experienced during the downturn was less than property generally. So it proved to be a resilient sort of asset class um, through a period of uncertainty. And you mentioned that um, part of the reason that's been driving you know, growth in this area is a lack of supply of student accommodation. Do you think that's likely to persist? So this is really interesting because student accommodation has been in vogue for a few years now. It's kind of There's been quite a lot of talk in the press about student accommodation. And I think the reason for that is the UK as a nation is a global educator. Um, it's sort of second to the US in terms of attracting international students, but we also have a very large domestic student population. With um, through the social mobility agenda, there's quite a lot. You know, a lot of our 18-year-olds um, do go to university in the UK, and there's about two million or so students sort of attending higher education in this country. The thing that I find interesting is, on a headline, there's probably a lot more students than there are this type of accommodation for the nation as a whole. But then there are pockets where there's oversupply and places where there are uh, there's an undersupply of this type of accommodation. And London in particular, I believe, is the market that has the um, most structural undersupply. So in we estimate that in, in this city, London, there's about 400,000 students going to universities as part-time and full-time postgrad and undergrad students. Um, and there's only about 100,000 or so beds um, available to them in purpose-built student accommodation. And a big chunk of that is um, stock or buildings which were built by the universities, some of them back to the 1950s, 40s, 60s. Um, and the universities control about 50,000 of those 100,000 beds. Um, and the rest is sort of the private market. And that's the space where we play. But if you think about it, 400-odd thousand students and only 100,000 beds, there's 300,000 or so students that are effectively having to compromise in terms of where um, and how they live effectively. And you know, why is there such a huge discrepancy between the amount of beds available and, and the number of students? I mean, is it what, what's been holding so, that back? So one of the things that happened, I guess, is the growth in um, the student demographic has sort of outpaced the ability for the universities and the, the market to sort of keep up with that change in demand. Um, but also there's been sort of structural issues. So universities used to be able to use um, funding to provide accommodation, whereas with the introduction of tuition fees, um, the tuition fees that they receive from students are now ring-fenced towards the provision of the academic um, service. So universities are almost hamstrung in terms of getting money to be able to deliver accommodation. So they've been looking at ways of doing deals where they keep um, the accommodation off balance sheet um, and looking at the private sector, partnering with the private sector to deliver um, accommodation. But that's where the opportunity arose for the private players to start delivering buildings and directly letting them to students. And what kind of assets do you invest in then? I mean, what kind of properties are we talking about here? So our oldest building in our portfolio was the one that started the REIT. So when we launched the company, I think people thought we were mad because it was a single property 
um, real estate investment trust. Although although it was a single property, it had 588 units within it. So um, effectively, you had 588 credits or covenants or income streams coming out of the one building. So it did provide diversification. And that's one of the sort of key attractions of this as a sector is that it's incredibly granular um, in terms of the where the income's being sort of generated. Um, and uh, we launched that building with a sort of new proposition. We thought that the market and the students deserved a better product. And um, I talked about the introduction of tuition fees. And that actually, in our minds, created a sort of step change or a mindset change in terms of how the market treats the students in that they became consumers and they were seeking more than just a bed. They were seeking an experience. They were seeking um, building a network. They, they were effectively, it was a lifestyle choice. And we thought that we could deliver a better product. So the guys in the office spent a, a very long time working with interior designers, building prototypes, and effectively, after sort of walking through four different product types, created what we now call the Scape Studio, um, which is the typical um, bedroom in our buildings. And that then effectively created the platform for us to deliver buildings, which we think provide a better um, a better experience for the students. But what sort of then what it then meant was that we were different to our competitors, um, and we were, one of the key differentiators was the scale of our building. So, having five hundred and eighty eight beds meant that um, we could deliver more efficient buildings. So you'd be able to deliver a higher level of service to the students in terms of like having concierges. But because you're distributing or spreading the costs of that service across 588 beds, um, you were still operationally, for every sort of pound in rent that the student was paying, you were generating more net income for shareholders and investors. And this property was built in 2012 um, and the fund launched in 2013. And since then, we've been able to add to the portfolio. So we now have 10 buildings. We've got bigger buildings um, than that by value. So the building in Shoreditch has 541 beds, but we also have 50,000 square feet of commercial space with WeWork occupying. But it's it's effectively given us that opportunity to create what we think is the um, the type of product that the sort of students demand. And you mentioned that you constructed that building. Is that what you do with all your buildings? Do you develop them from scratch or do you buy existing buildings as well? Yeah, that, this is actually a, a very interesting point because I described um, the building and how it arose. The REIT is an investment trust, so it seeks to deliver to shareholders a return mainly derived out of income. So it doesn't really look to um, get exposed to development um, because development comes with risks. So that building was developed by Scape. Scape is a sort of partner of the REITs. So it is the asset manager of the properties. It's the developer of most of the buildings. And the company, GCP Student, has had or has a pipeline agreement with Scape, which means that the first six, seven buildings that they built, the REIT had the opportunity to um, acquire and it has acquired. So if you look at the 10 assets in our portfolio, um, the majority of them are Scape assets. Um, so, the, But the REIT itself will typically not take the development risk. So once the building has completed and the students have moved in and it's become an investment asset that's generating income, that's when the REIT will acquire the property. One thing, though, that we did do in the summer of 2015 was we, we spoke to our shareholders and we explained to them that we were seeing um, into that year, we saw about £2 billion worth of investment opportunities. Um, two thirds of those were forward funding. So people wanting to create the building for the first place, um, you know, they were developing. And we we asked our investors and, and suggested that um, 
the company be allowed to do some forward fundings, which is slightly different from developing in that the company gets involved in a property before it's built, commits to buying that building ahead of it being built, but it earns a license fee from the developer and it's protected by a series of mechanisms such as performance bonds from the contractor, um, different insurance products around delay and startups, but also there's a developer making money. So um, you've got all of that profit um, in the development appraisal sort of insulating the REIT and in ultimately ensuring that the building gets delivered um, to, to the company. And that is something that we can do but only to a very limited extent. So there are restrictions in our investment policy that says that we can't do too much of that, which is why um, typically we'll only have one going on at a time. We did one just before the referendum vote in Wembley, a 576-bed scheme. We forward-funded near central London by Wembley Park Underground Station. And that is a really good example of us being able to get involved early in the delivery of a scheme. Um, influencing the design, being able to sort of put the um, the exact sort of scape studio that I mentioned that we spent all this type developing with interior designers into that building, and it was a, a very good performer for the trust or for the for the REIT because um, we invested about eighty million pounds in terms of our book cost, and the day it opened, our Knight Frank, our values went round the building, and they said that in their opinion it was its value was eighty nine million. So there's quite a big um, uplift there for shareholders, which isn't surprising because you're getting involved early, and there's usually an arbitrage. Um, so there's often you're buying it off a softer yield, which means that you're um, you get compensated or rewarded for getting involved early earlier in the process. And you mentioned the forward fund in the arrangement that you can do you know how often are you able to do that what are the restrictions around how often you can do that so the policy or the prospectus for the company restricts forward fundings to 15 percent of gross assets um, and then we've also got a restriction on the amount of land that we can buy which is 20 percent of gross assets so it's there's a reason for it because these these investments do involve a little bit more risk and you do get compensated for 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 that risk but it's the whole idea from my perspective is it's probably my most precious tool in my toolkit when it comes to investing which means that i'm incredibly um, picky and particular around where and when we do it um, but it just means that when it comes to looking at the market and looking for investment opportunities i've got one extra place where i can look and if you think about the investment market in the uk particularly in the areas that we choose to focus on it's it's incredibly restricted because it's not like people are building um, student accommodation buildings and they're coming off conveyor belts in London um, because London has lots of reasons why um, this type of asset isn't being delivered. And you mentioned that London is is where primarily the trust focuses. Um, but I know recently you've been looking more closely at Brighton and um, you're planning to forward fund the construction of Escape Brighton. So um, can you tell us anything more about, about this and why you're looking towards Brighton and what's going on with that project? Yeah, of course. So start talking about London very briefly and then talk about Brighton. So why do I love London? I talked about the number of students and I talked about the, the, the number of beds. What I haven't really talked about is the supply side barriers in the London market. So if you wanted to build a 600 bed or 500 bed student scheme in London, you would have to go through a planning process, you'd have to identify a site, you'd have to successfully bid for that site. And that means that you're in constant competition with a market. And that market over the last 
several years, um, there's been a lot of alternative uses, higher value alternative uses that have been competing with you and actually securing those sites. And that is still the case today. So there's a lot of money um, circling London looking to build residential, you know, build to rent type accommodation. And they bid for the same sites as student student providers do. Um, So that means that there's sort of a market demand factor that's affecting um, the ability for new schemes to come through in London. There is then the other restrictions which come through through regulations and planning. So London is one of the few cities in the UK where Boris, when he was mayor, and then since Sadiq became mayor, he sort of his draft London plan that's been out for consultation has sort of made it sort of even stricter. They're trying to limit the amount of student accommodation buildings that are built um, without affordable student rooms. So the policy, in my mind, has something that's incredibly good at heart, which is it's trying to deliver beds in London for students which are competitively priced, which means that domestic students throughout the UK can come and study in London and live in London. But one of the problems with the policy is that those beds um, are subject to a viability assessment, which means there's a big question mark as to whether... um, there will be any or there won't be any and also when does the viability assessment take place so it's sort of created question marks for a developer where he doesn't have certainty as to what how much he's going to have to deliver and actually for a funder or an investor he then doesn't know what he's buying is he buying a building with 10 percent affordable 20 percent affordable what level of affordable is going to be in that building and Sadiq has tried to address that by sort of saying that it will be in his draft London plan saying it will be 35 percent but then he's still saying it's subject to a viability assessment so um, that sort of um, uncertain planning environment causes difficulties and then the last thing that from a planning and regs perspective that affected London was the introduction of the community infrastructure levy that originally came through to fund Crossrail but then it stayed and different London boroughs can use it as a sort of tool to promote some developments over others and they use it to promote residential over student um, accommodation in London so the sill charge for a student scheme is typically much higher on a per square meter basis or the planning gain tax um, than it is for a residential scheme. And then I started to look at the rest of the UK and I've looked at a lot of cities because, you know, there's some great cities with great universities throughout the UK. But what I was looking at was how much light industrial is there um, where the, you know, the, the land prices are cheap within close proximity to universities or city centres and how easy is it to get planning consents and actually deliver buildings. And there's lots of examples throughout the UK of cities and towns where there's a lot of purpose-built student accommodation being delivered um, and there doesn't seem to be any sort of restrictions or supply-side barriers. Um, I then decided to look at where in the UK do I think uh, there are towns and cities that shares London's characteristics and that's when I identified Brighton because Brighton has similar policies in terms of restricting the the development of purpose-built student accommodation. They also then have a very strong sort of office market, residential market, so they've got the same sort of market forces at play in terms of restricting um, the development of purpose-built student accommodation and that's that's why I'm looking at the Brighton market and we're currently forward funding a scheme right in the centre of Brighton um, which is let to um, Kaplan, which will have, or is pre-let to Kaplan. So that lease will be kicking in once the building completes and it will be a 21-year income stream with inflation plus 50 bips um, growth each year. So it's got RPI plus 50 bips um, attached to it. And yeah, that's kind of why I, I love Brighton. And Brighton isn't alone. In my list, I've got Bristol, Bath 
and Cambridge and Oxford, but Cambridge and Oxford are trickier towns and cities because um, you've got collegiate universities which own and sort of deliver their sort of student experience includes accommodating them and then you've, you're talking about the second universities in those towns like Anglia Ruskin and Oxford Brooks universities being the ones providing the, the students for the direct ed model and um, I've got difficulties identifying sites in the city centre that, that I believe would suit those students so I haven't gone there but I've they are on my radar effectively. Okay um, and what do you think are the main risks of investing in this area? You know, because people have been talking about the potential for Brexit to limit the, or you know stop students coming to the UK as much, making it less attractive. Is that something you're concerned about? Um, I think, like um, probably every citizen in the UK, I do watch um, the sort of developments or lack of developments in terms of having some certainty as to what will be happening around Brexit. Um, what gives me sort of ultimate comfort is that students are effectively demonstrating how they feel about Brexit through the process effectively of applying to universities. So UCAS, actually, before I talk about UCAS, we're very fortunate in the United Kingdom that we've got such incredible transparency when it comes to student numbers, because there's UCAS as a body that sort of funnels all of the applications and acceptances through it. And UCAS, um, have tracked and they publish statistics that show that the number of international students applying to study in the UK for courses starting in September 18 has grown this year. Um, it's one of the few sort of student bodies that is growing. Um, and in particular, the sort of nations that are applying to come to, to study in the UK are students from, from China, India, um, the US. Um, they've all been growing, which is encouraging because I think that just demonstrates that if you think about it, typically an undergraduate degree is three years in the United Kingdom. That that goes beyond Brexit, and they're they're effectively saying they're going to be here for those three years, so that they're, they're unaffected. Um, in terms of risks, I was quite concerned by the rhetoric from government initially around immigration statistics and international students, but I feel more relaxed now um, because there's been quite a lot of press around. Um, international students and their contribution to to the UK, um, not just economically, but s sort of in terms of um, all the other sort of social um, benefits that we get from them being here. And the rhetoric has changed. So Theresa May um, hasn't been talking about international students in the same way as she was before. Um, she's been on trade missions to India, where she's been promoting higher education. We've seen a big surge in Indian students uh, applying this year. In the Brexit white paper, um, there's also been, within that document, um, discussion around still continuing to welcome EU students in the same way as before. So I'm feeling a lot more relaxed about that than I was. I think what really helped was when the government figured that the statistics that they were looking at in terms of the number of students who stayed after they finished their degrees was all flawed and that actually a lot of international students do actually return back to their home countries once they finish finish their, their courses here. Um, and I think that's why the government's rhetoric has changed so much lately. On a separate matter, in terms of the yield that's given out of this trust, I don't believe the dividend's covered by the income from the properties fully. So when do you expect this to be the case? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's something that's been quite topical over the last few months because quite a few investment trusts have had issues around dividend cover with lower dividend covers than, than our own. What's interesting about GCP student 
as a company is it started, as I mentioned, back in 13 as a single asset REIT, and it's grown to 10 assets. Um, one of the things that we have done, as I mentioned earlier, is we've now forward-funded schemes. So like Wembley, we entered into the deal in June 2016. The building completed in July, August 17. And we've had this year as the first year when the building has been fully let and generating income from the students. During the period when we were funding the opportunity, we were earning a license fee from the developer. So although it wasn't generating income, it was kind of generating income because it was generating this this coupon for, for the trust. And um, currently we're forward funding this asset, which I'm incredibly excited about in the centre of Brighton, which has the 21-year income stream to Kaplan. So that property is affecting our dividend cover as we speak. Um, There's a second asset that's been affecting our dividend cover, which is the property we bought off Unite on Bloomsbury, um, on Woburn Place. Um, That's a 400, will be a 432-bed scheme. And that had students living in it until September last year. Since the last student sort of left the property, we have we've had contractors in there. We've gutted the property. We'll be reopening the building as a scape asset, so it's going to have all the the the, the sort of experience that I talked about in our buildings before. And from that point, it will be back generating income for the trust, and we're and we're expecting it to reopen this September. So, assuming the company didn't acquire any further assets, the dividend would be covered from the moment our assets are fully operational and. The Circus Street Kaplan lease asset is expected to be from September 19 and Bloomsbury this year. So I would expect that from September 19 onwards, our dividend cover would be more than fully covered. That's great. Thanks very much, Nick, for a discussion of your your trust. Thank you. That brings us to the end of today's show. But you can read more about British Empire Trust's new Japanese equity investment trust and ESG funds in this week's magazine and the website. Thanks very much and have a great weekend. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.